The New Testament reading today is John 8, 48 through 59. John 8, 48 through 59. The Old Testament reading is Exodus 3, 10 through 22. That will be the sermon text as well. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word, John 8, 48. The Jews answered him, Jesus, saying, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The Old Testament reading is Exodus three ten through 22 That is the sermon text for today, so let us go there. Exodus 3, verse 10. God is here speaking to Moses and continuing his dialogue with him from the burning bush that was burned but not consumed. He said, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hevites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. 
And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. You, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. One thing I have noticed is that Christians love to talk about Jesus, but they are sometimes hesitant to talk about God. Have you ever noticed this? Christians love to talk about Jesus, but they are sometimes hesitant to talking to, to talk about God. You're probably thinking, well, that sounds like a very strange thing for a pastor to say. Um, isn't Jesus God after all? Well, yes, Jesus is God incarnate. In the one person of Jesus Christ, there are two natures, the human and divine. As our confession says, these two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Jesus is indeed very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So we are not wrong to say Jesus is God, but to guard against confusion, we must also say God is not Jesus. Are you tracking with me? Jesus had flesh and bones, God does not. Jesus had a human soul, God does not. Jesus grew and experienced human emotions, God does not. Jesus is indeed God incarnate, that is true. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with Him, who made the world, who upholds and governs all things He has made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon Him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. That is our confession once more. But we must also insist that God is not Jesus. God is not a creature. He is the creator of all things seen and unseen. He is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. He is Immutable, He is immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite. This is what our God is. I've begun this sermon with this riddle, if I may call it that. Not because I intend to teach thoroughly on the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Christ today. We don't have the time for that. But because I wish to convince you in a short time that we ought to give more attention to the doctrine of God. We should be very interested to know who He is and what He is like. And by the way, I do intend to take you through a study on the doctrine of God in Sunday school in the not-too-distant future. In mid to late October, I'll begin this study and you should come to that class. But, But we do also have a marvelous opportunity to grow in our comprehension of God in our study of the book of Exodus. For here in this book... Foundations are laid concerning who God is. 
In fact, if we wish to know who God is and what He is like, we must start in the beginning. In the books of Genesis and Exodus, God, our Creator and Redeemer, is revealed to us. So we must start there and build upon that foundation. Maybe this is one reason why Christians are more comfortable talking about Jesus than they are talking about God. Christians, today at least, do tend to be more familiar with the New Testament Scriptures than the Old. Uh, This is a mistake, I think. Uh, Yes, the New Testament revelation is very crucial. It is greater than the Old Testament in some very important ways. But the New Testament is not meant to be read apart from the Old. To read the New And to neglect the old would be like going straight to the last few chapters of a great novel. Who would do that? You can't do that. Uh, Yes, it is true that those might be the best chapters of the book, but they can only be enjoyed as the best chapters if we read the first and more foundational chapters. And I do believe this tendency to read the New Testament and to neglect the old has contributed in some ways to this tendency that some Christians have to emphasize Christ, but to the neglect of God Himself, to the neglect of the knowledge of God Himself. And so let me ask you, should we love, worship, and serve Christ? The answer is, yes, we should, for He is God and He is our Savior. And is Christ, in some respects, at the center of our religion? And the story of our redemption, the answer to that is yes, for He is the Messiah, the Savior, the mediator between God and man. As it pertains to our salvation, our redemption, Christ is indeed the center, and it is He who we proclaim. Now please consider this. Christ did not die to reconcile us to Himself as the Christ who is both God and man. Did you hear that statement? Christ did not die to reconcile us to Himself as the Christ. No, He died and rose again to reconcile us to the eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that in all things it is God who gets the glory. That is why Christ is called the only mediator between God and man. He is the mediator, the middleman, the door, the way between us and who? God eternal, uh, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is why He came, to reconcile us to Him. This means that though Christ might be at the center of our religion, He is not the end or the goal of it. He is not the destination of it. God is. Christ came to reconcile us to the Father, so we had better know God. We had better know God. We had better know who He is, what He is like. We had better learn to worship and serve Him, to enjoy Him, to savor Him forever. For this was the purpose for which Christ came, to reconcile us to the Father. Christ is not the end or the goal. The glory of the eternal God, the triune God, is the goal of our religion. Christ has redeemed us from bondage to sin, Satan, and death, so that we might worship and serve Enjoy and glorify the triune God forever and ever. As Paul says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him, that is to God, be glory forever and ever. Amen. To state the matter differently, I'll ask you this question. Do you know God? 
Do you know God? Not do you know Christ, but do you know God? And yes, it is true to know God. That is to stand before Him innocent, clean, and righteous, and to have a right relationship with Him. You must know Christ by faith. He is the the door. He is the way. But here I am asking you, do you know God? Are you in a right relationship with Him? And do you know Him? That is to say, His nature, His attributes, His names. Do you know God? Well, that is enough of me trying to convince you that we should care deeply about knowing God so that we might delight in Him and glorify Him forever. We need to get to our text for today. And and as we do, we will quickly recognize that it is a very important passage as it pertains to the knowledge of God. For here, God reveals the meaning of His name to Moses. The previous passage was very important too, for we learned a great deal about God when He revealed Himself to Moses in that bush that was burning yet not consumed. This passage is a continuation of that one. For in this entire event, God was revealing His character and nature to Moses as He called him to be the deliverer of His people. In verse 10, God speaks to Moses saying, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I want for you to consider how terrifying this call must have been to Moses. Pharaoh was very, very powerful and ruthless and Moses was very weak in comparison. This call would be like God saying to you, Come, I will send you to, now pick the world leader, Putin or Kim Jong-un or or whomever you wish. And I will work a mighty act of deliverance through you. Um, You know, it does help to put yourself in Moses' position, doesn't it? In his place to understand the struggle. Uh, This was a terrifying call that God uh, delivered to him. And we should not forget what happened last time that Moses tried to accomplish deliverance for the Hebrews. Forty years had passed since that terrible failure that brought Moses to the wilderness. Do you remember that? He tried. And it was just an utter failure. He couldn't even get a couple of Hebrews to follow him. He couldn't accomplish anything at all. He was driven away into the wilderness where he met his future uh, bride and and father-in-law. And there he was for 40 years tending to a flock. And so Moses is very humble now. And he's unsure of himself, which we are to see as a very good thing. Verse 11, But Moses said to God, here is his response, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? We are to see that this is a very different attitude in Moses from the one we encountered back in Exodus 2.11 and following. As I've said, Moses was humbled. Who am I, Moses asked. And as the narrative unfolds, we are going to find that this question was dismissed entirely by God, making the answer to be, it doesn't matter who you are, Moses. God doesn't answer this question. Who am I that I should go? God doesn't even address it. He dismisses it. It doesn't matter who you are, Moses. What matters is who I am and that I am with you. Verse 12, God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. But I will be with you, God said. That is the point. No such words were spoken prior to Moses' first attempt at deliverance, which ended in failure. And I suppose there is a warning for all of God's people here 
to not get ahead of God or to attempt to live by our own strength. No, instead we must wait patiently upon the Lord and we must depend upon Him for all things. Moses got ahead of himself 40 years earlier. God did not call him nor say, I will be with you. But now God does promise to be with him. I think this is a valid application that I've just made, but I believe that the reason Moses highlighted the failure of his first attempt and the success of his second in this way was to show Israel beyond all doubt that from beginning to end, this deliverance was the Lord's work. Keep this in mind. Moses wrote Exodus. He wrote Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch too, but he wrote this book. It is Moses who is highlighting his first failure and then the success But what is the difference between the two? It is the call of God upon him. So Moses himself wished to emphasize this. This was all the Lord's work. He himself was just a servant of the Lord, just a tool used in the hand of God. When God called him and promised to be with him, then there was success. This was the Lord's work, not the work of Moses. And I think the point is this, God must get the glory, friends. And He will have the glory when we humbly submit ourselves to His Word instead of going about things our own way. How how can we give God glory? Uh, Yes, by by serving Him and, and, and worshiping Him. That is true, but we must do it according to His Word. That's how He will get the glory because then we know that it is He who is at work and not we who are producing whatever results there are. I think this is a very important message for the Church of Christ to hear today. Yes, we must worship and serve the Lord, but we must do it His way and in accordance with what He has said, so that as He works, we see quite clearly He is working apart from us. It is His work. He's working through us, but it is not us who is doing the work. At the end of verse 12, God promised to provide a sign for Moses, which would prove that God had sent him. Let me read that verse. When you, you here is singular, when you, Moses, have brought the people out of Egypt, you, now in the plural, so referring to Moses and Israel together, you shall serve God on this mountain. This promised sign was that God, the promised sign was that God would appear to Moses and Israel as they served God at Sinai after being delivered from Egypt. So just as God was here appearing to Moses in the small fire, in the bush that was burning yet not consumed, so too God would appear to Israel in a much greater flame as they came before Him at Sinai. This future sign would, of course, do no good to Moses in the present, nor in the immediate future as he stood before Pharaoh, No, this was God's commitment to be with Moses long term. That was the commitment that God is here making. I will be with you, Moses, and after you bring Israel out of Egypt, I will will appear to you, you and Israel. I will prove, in other words, that I I am with you and that I have sent you. And those who are familiar with the rest of the story of Exodus know that God kept this promise. God would indeed demonstrate to the people that he was with Moses through the signs and wonders that he showed forth at Sinai. You know, we should recognize that standing before ruthless and powerful Pharaoh was not the only terrifying aspect of God's call to Moses. 
This also must have been terrifying. The thought of leading that great multitude of people after deliverance from Egypt. Forty years earlier, Moses could not even convince the two Hebrews who were fighting that they should listen to his voice and follow his lead. Think about that. He tried to start a movement and and to provide deliverance for for the people of Israel. No one followed him. No one listened to his voice. So in his mind, he must have thought this. Even if God does deliver this great multitude from Egyptian bondage, and even if he does bring them out into this wilderness and, and lead them towards the promised land, what am I going to do with this people? Certainly there's going to be trouble. Certainly there are going to be challenges. And so one of the fears must have been, God, you will be with me as I stand before Pharaoh and you will bring us out of Egypt. But will you be with me for the long haul? Will you stay with me? And here God was promising to be with Moses for the long haul, to, just, to demonstrate to him and to the people together that God was with him. This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I cannot help but make this passing observation once more. Israel would be redeemed from Egyptian bondage, in order to worship and serve the Lord. And you and I have been set free from all spiritual bondage in order to worship and serve the Lord. We must not forget this. In verse 13, we come to the heart of this wonderful passage. Moses asked God a very important question. Again, I will read it. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? So then Moses quickly moved on from the meaningless question, notice, Who am I? to the all-important question, Who are you? What is your name? Who am I, Lord, that you should send me? God dismisses that, promises to be with him. Okay, then who are you? Who are you? What is, what is your name? Names are very important, maybe even more important than we realize. When someone or something is named, the name comes to signify everything about that person or thing. If I say the word rock, your mind is immediately filled with the thought of a rock and all of its rocky characteristics. Isn't that true? If I say tree, something similar happens. If I say Steve, you think of a Steve, don't you? And the person whom that name represents. And so we must see that names are very important. In fact, we are unable to talk or think clearly about people or things apart from their names. So when Moses asked for God's name, he was not asking a superficial question, you know. It's not like he was walking away from the conversation and said, Oh wait, by the way, what's your name? You know, it was not that. He was asking for something profound. By asking for God's name, Moses was requesting insight into who God is. What is your name means who are you? Who is this one that we are to trust and to follow? The call was so terrifying. The mission before Moses was so great. The journey would have been so filled with with trouble for this great multitude of people. If we are to follow you, if we are to trust and obey you, we need to know who you are. What What is your name? That is the significance of the question. 
please understand that God does not have a name by nature. He is the nameless one, for he is incomprehensible. There is no name, nor is there a collection of names that can adequately encapsulate and communicate all that God is. Again, God is incomprehensible. He is nameless by nature. But God has called Himself by certain names for us, that is to say, for our benefit. He has come down to our level in this way, by naming Himself. By revealing Himself to us in these names, He condescends to our creaturely limitations and weaknesses so that we might know Him and address Him truly and with understanding. Quoting now the great Reformed theologian Hermann Bavinck, Although God in Himself has no name, we have a need to refer to Him. And for this, we have no other means than a name. And Bavinck quoting Isidore, For unless you know the name, your knowledge of things vanishes. So by God revealing His names to us, He is... is condescending to us. This is an act of of, of revelation. That is the point. God is saying, here is my name, and by this name you may know something that is true of me. So God has names, not eternally or by nature, but as a form of revelation. The names of God communicate truth about God to us, enabling us to know Him, to speak about Him, and to speak to Him also. So what are the proper names of God? That is the names that we are to use to address Him. The most generic names for God are El, Elohim, and El Shaddai. These Hebrew names are typically translated into the English language as God or God Most High. The names El and Elohim emphasize God's transcendence. He is highly exalted and above all things. He is the Sovereign One. The name El Shaddai places special emphasis upon His kindness and benevolence towards us as His creatures. So though God is high and lifted up, He is also near to us. He is kind. The proper name for God that is given and defined here in our passage for today is Yahweh. The Jews considered this name to be, quoting Bavink again, the preeminent name for God, the name that describes God's essence, God's proper name, the, four, the, the glorious four-lettered name, the Tetragrammaton, and over time they concluded that they were forbidden to pronounce it. And so being driven by this misunderstanding, they would replace the name Yahweh with the word Adonai, which means Lord. And in the process of time, scribes combined the vowels from the word Adonai with the consonants Yahweh, producing the name Jehovah. Some within the Reformed tradition still prefer to to say Jehovah, and undoubtedly the influence of the King James Version, which uses the term Jehovah, has something to do with this. But it has been my practice to say Yahweh, though my pronunciation of the name has fluctuated over time, I will admit it. How do our English translations typically translate the name Yahweh? They often use the word Lord, but in all capitals to distinguish it from the straightforward translation of the word Adonai, which, also, which, which means Lord. And so the point is this. The name that God revealed to Moses out of the bush that was burning yet not consumed was Yahweh. This was the name that Moses was to pronounce when the Hebrews asked him, 
What is his name? What is his name? His name is Yahweh. Now in Exodus chapter 6 verse 3, we will come to a perplexing little comment. There the Lord speaks to Moses again, saying, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, who lived a long time before Moses, right? I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So why is that a perplexing statement? Well, it is because the name Yahweh appears everywhere in Genesis from chapter 2 onward, and it is often on the lips of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so I'm asking the question here, did Moses forget what he had written in Genesis? I think not. Instead, we are to understand Exodus 6.3 in this way. Though the name Yahweh was known and used by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though it was pronounced by them, the true meaning of it was not revealed. God was known to the patriarchs as El Shaddai, that is to say, God Most High, the one who is benevolent and kind, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. But when they used the name Yahweh, this is what they knew. They knew Him as God Most High. The name Yahweh had not been filled with this meaning yet. The the true meaning of the, the name had not been revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the way that it was revealed to Moses out of the bush that was burning yet not consumed. When Moses, when God appeared to Moses in that bush, uh, he uttered the name Yahweh. It had been uttered before. It was the same name for God used by the fathers. But he gave Moses more insight into the significance of the name. God filled the name Yahweh with greater meaning. In other words, Moses was given more light than Abraham was concerning the knowledge of God's name. So what was new about the revelation given to Moses? What was unique about it so that God could say to him, I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Well, here in Exodus 3, not only is the name Yahweh pronounced, it is also explained. Not only is it pronounced, it is also explained. And that was the thing that did not happen before. Here, from the bush that was burning yet not consumed, God filled the name Yahweh with new and greater meaning for His covenant people. And they would need this. They would need to know this about God, uh, that He is Yahweh, that He is the great I Am. By the way, something very similar happened in the days of Christ and with the inauguration of of the new covenant. A new name for God was brought to the forefront and filled with greater significance in those days. It was not a brand new name for God, you know, one that had never been used before, but this name was placed front and center in those days and imbued with greater significance by Christ Himself for the new covenant people of God. And what, what is that name? Do you know? Any, anyone want to take a guess? I don't usually do this. I think I heard it. Father. Father. Did the Old Covenant people of God ever refer to God as Father? Answer, yes they did. You may see Deuteronomy 32.6, Isaiah 63.16 for example. 
But that name for God was not central to the Old Covenant people of God. And we might ask why. Well, I think it is this because not all who were members of the Old Covenant had God as Heavenly Father. Many disbelieved and rebelled against Him. Yes, God was their Father in the sense that He was their Creator, as He is the Creator of all of us. And He was Father in a heavenly and spiritual sense to some of them who had faith in the promised Messiah, but He was not Father to all of the Old Covenant people of God. For many disbelieved and were in fact enemies of God, though they were Israelites according to the flesh. But when Christ comes and He inaugurates this new covenant... He brings the name Father to the forefront. He makes it front and center. And this is fitting for the New Covenant. Things are different under the New Covenant. The New Covenant is not like the Old in this respect. Under the New Covenant, all know the Lord. All have the law written on their hearts. All have the Spirit of God. All are sons and daughters. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 6. And so Jesus taught His new covenant people to pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. And even more profoundly, Christ taught His church to baptize new disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it is the name Father that is brought to the forefront, and even more than this, it is the triune name of God that is brought to the forefront. And as I have said, brothers and sisters, um, under the new covenant, the name Father is brought to the fore and filled with greater significance, and, and it is appropriate. For all who are truly members of this new covenant through faith in Christ, they have God as Father. He is not only El. Nor is He only Elohim or El Shaddai or Yahweh. He is Father, for through the new covenant instituted in Christ's blood, we have been reconciled to Him and adopted as His beloved children through faith in the Messiah. And more than this, it was through the arrival of the Messiah, who is the eternal Son of God come in the flesh, that the full light of the revelation of the triune God was revealed to us. You know, someone asked me just the other day, A very good question. Was the Trinity revealed in Old Testament times? Was the Trinity revealed in Old Testament times? And the answer is this, yes, dimly and mysteriously. What did God say when He created man? Let us make man in our image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. Let let us, what, what does that mean, us? Who is God talking to? right? We wonder. The plural name for God, Elohim, did also reveal plurality in the Godhead. And when God created in the beginning, we see that God spoke His Word as the Spirit hovered. So, So we see some sort of distinction there. God speaking and the Spirit active. The Trinity is there, revealed, but dimly and mysteriously. But with the coming of Christ and the accomplishment of our redemption came greater and clearer revelation too. And a new name for God was brought to the fore and placed upon the people of God. Hear it again. Those who have faith and the Messiah are to be baptized in the name. Do you notice that name there is singular? Baptize them in the, in the name. And then three names are given. In the name of the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, what was dimly and mysteriously revealed in ages past becomes clear with the inauguration of the new covenant and the accomplishment of our redemption. I've said in the past that redemptive act and revelation fit nicely together, and they do. We see this pattern throughout Scripture. God acts and God speaks. In those days when God redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage, Moses received greater light than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did concerning the meaning of God's and significance of God's proper name, Yahweh. And when Christ accomplished our redemption by His life, death, and resurrection, He did also clearly reveal what was in the past, dimly and mysteriously revealed, in the plural name for God, Elohim. By commanding that His disciples have the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, placed upon them in the waters of baptism, He clearly revealed what was once revealed dimly. And what is that? It is that in this divine and infinite being there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let us get back to the text and ask, what is the significance of this name for God which was revealed to Moses? Well, from the burning bush onward, we know for certain that the name Yahweh signifies that God is self-existent, eternal, and unchanging. Verse 13, again, then Moses said, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So Yahweh is the name that God gave to Moses to speak to the people of Israel. Again, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And what is the significance of this name? God revealed to Moses that this name was to signify His self-existent, eternal, and unchanging nature. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And later He said, Tell the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So God is the great I Am, and it is the name Yahweh which signifies this. God is the great I Am, and it is the name Yahweh which signifies this. When God says, I Am, He means that He is eternal. Never was He not, and never will He not be. Don't you love just to sit back and to try to to comprehend that? That never was God not, and never will He not be. It's easier for me to picture, to to comprehend, never will He not be. But when I try to comprehend what it means that never was God not, never was there a time when He did not exist, I can't wrap my head around it, and and I think that is good. Um, uh, For this is God, and and He is not like us. He, He transcends us. God is. He simply exists. Never does He become He always has been and ever will be. The phrase, I am who I am, may also be translated, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. When we bring all of this together, we must confess that God is here filling the name Yahweh, which sounds like the Hebrew word translated, I am, with a significance that it did not have before. When God's people utter that name, they are to think 
of the God who is eternal, who had no beginning and will have no end. He simply is. He exists. They are to think of his self-existence too. No one created God. He is the creator of all things, seen and unseen. He always was. He depends upon no one and nothing outside of himself. He is the fire that needs no fuel to burn, remember. He gives life to all, but he himself receives life from no one. As Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. What is, what is Paul's point? No one has ever given God anything. No, no one has given Him life. No one has added to Him. He he is. He is the source of all things. From Him are all things, and to Him all things will, will return. He is God Almighty. He is the self-existent One. He is the great I Am. And when we hear the name Yahweh, we are also to think that God is unchanging. You say, well, where, where does the text say that? Well, think with me for just a moment. If God is if He always has been and ever will be, then He cannot change. If, we're God, if God were to change in the slightest, then the God who is would not be the God who was. If God were to change in the slightest, then the God who is would not be the God who was. And the God who was would not be the God who will be. God is. This means, it must mean, that He is unchanging. He does not change. Have you ever heard it said, I'm not the man or woman that I used to be? That statement is truer than we realize, probably. For you and I are constantly changing. Always. Even as I speak, you're changing. Right now, you're changing. Moment by moment. Our bodies are always either growing or decaying. We are always learning. You changed this morning mentally. I hope that you did. I hope you gained some insights into, into the nature of God. That, that's change, is it not? You learned something that you didn't know before. Our emotions are constantly fluctuating. And so even if we could say, I am, in one moment, in the next moment, we, that would no longer be true. For in each and every moment, we are not what we used to be. But God is and He always is God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Him there is no variation or shadow due to change, says James 1.17. I do have to move this sermon towards a conclusion. And I will do so by asking the question, what impact should the name Yahweh have upon the people of God now that God has revealed its significance. In other words, what comfort is brought to the people of God as they think of Him as the great I Am, the one who is self-existent, eternal, and unchanging? It should be clear that this name is to reassure the people of God concerning His faithfulness and His trustworthiness. God's people always need this. They need to be reassured that God is faithful and trustworthy. But I think you can see why the people of Israel really needed this. 
This was a gift to them from God, this, this act of revelation. I think there was a reason that this name was revealed more clearly to Moses in these days as God was preparing to lead the people of Israel out of bondage and towards the promised land. Um, he was seeking to strengthen them. He's done something similar with us in the name Father. He seeks to strengthen us and to encourage our hearts concerning our right relationship with Him and His concern for us in Christ, His love for us. But I think this was a gift to them. They really needed to know that God could be trusted, that He would be faithful to keep these promises that He had made. I mean, these promises were unbelievable promises. Really? You're going to free us through this guy? <laughs> From that guy? And you're going to take us there? To conquer that people? Who are we? Who am I? They needed to trust the Lord. They needed to know that He was faithful, that, that He would keep His promises. And it is because God is self-existent, eternal and unchanging, that we are able to depend upon Him. In this sense, He is like a rock. In this sense, our God is like a rock. He is a solid foundation upon which we can stand. He will not shift under our feet like everything else in this created world does. You know that to be true of everything else in this created world. It's always changing. It's always shifting. And that is why we cannot depend upon created things ultimately. But God is worthy of our trust. Everything created moves. Yahweh does not. Never will he fail to keep his promises. In the remainder of this passage, the Lord gives instructions to Moses concerning what he is to say to Israel. In brief, he is to announce to them that the Lord will now act to keep the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob regarding the possession of Canaan. Moses is to reassure them that the Lord would be with them. He would lead them out of Egypt, not poor but rich, and he would bring the children of Abraham into Canaan just as he had promised so long ago. The revelation of the significance of the name Yahweh at this time in the history of redemption was fitting. Again, a huge multitude was called to follow their God out from under the heavy hand of the Egyptians into the wilderness and toward a land of promise, knowing that they were following not Moses, who was not, but God, who is, would be crucial to their success. For above all, they would need to trust Him. They would need to know that He is able and faithful to keep His Word. And the same is true for you and me. You and I are also to be comforted by the fact that we worship, serve, and trust in God, whose name is El, Elohim, El Shaddai, and Yahweh. He is God Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, sustainer and redeemer of mankind. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the great I Am, and more than this, He is our Father in heaven. For we have been redeemed and adopted as His beloved children through the shed blood of Christ, and He has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age, to bring us safely into our eternal inheritance in Christ's name. Let's bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ, the mediator between God and man, for the work that he has done to bring us back to you, O God, and into a right relationship with you. May we live for your glory, O Lord, and may we savor you day by day. 
Father, I pray that you would teach us more and more about who you are so that we might trust you more deeply, worship you more sincerely, and enjoy this relationship that is ours with you through Christ who has paid for all of our sins. In his name we pray. Amen.